Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Uh, Okie dokie. Um... And we're going to hear some music. This is Political Breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, immigration, border security, and the 2024 election. Janet Napolitano was Secretary of Homeland Security in the Obama administration, and she later served as president of the University of California until 2020. Today, she leads the Center for Security in Politics at UC Berkeley. Napolitano will join us shortly to talk about what security means in the age of artificial intelligence, not to mention rising doubts in some quarters about the integrity of our elections. But first, Republicans are planning to make what they say is a crisis at our southern border a top issue in this year's election. And a poll out this morning from the UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies shows how they might just be right. Here are a few top-line numbers from that survey. 62% of registered voters right here in California say our border with Mexico is not secure in preventing illegal crossings into the U.S. And Democrats are split right down the middle on that question, with 44 percent saying the borders are secure and 44 percent saying they are not secure. And asked whether unauthorized immigrants entering the U.S. illegally are a burden to the country, 72 percent of registered voters say they are either a major or minor burden. Just 22 percent say they're no burden at all. Here with me to help us understand how California voters are thinking about all this is KQED's immigration editor, Taiki Hendricks. Hey, Taiki. Hey, Scott. So much to unpack here, but remind us briefly, if you would, what the situation at the border is exactly in terms of the flow of people showing up, why they're there, and why those numbers of people seems to have really gone up dramatically since Joe Biden became president. Right. Well, Biden's presidency, you know, has coincided with the, with the pandemic and the end of the pandemic. Uh, and we have seen a, a big spike, dramatic spike uh, since uh, pandemic border restrictions were lifted um, when the border agents were really just ejecting people. Now we've got historic highs. We're really in a, a global migration crisis. It's not just a, in the U.S., um, but this country has been a beacon of protection and opportunity for for a very long time. And there are collapsing governments. There's climate change. 
and a lot of reasons that people are, are trying to get here. The Republicans, of course, characterize all this saying uh, that uh, Biden's open border policy, the way they describe it, is to blame. Now, we know that's not correct. uh, But is it fair to say that his policies have, in fact, made the situation worse? You know, it's so politicized. Republicans say Biden's put out the welcome mat. Progressives say Biden is more like Trump light, you know, that he's been doing more and more restrictive things. Uh, They'd like him to be even more Well, uh, that international law requires us to consider asylum claims. And it's, you know, that we have to consider them from all comers. Um, Then there are liberal voices like Senator Alex Padilla, who says we need to tackle the root causes of why people are migrating. Um, We need to offer more legal pathways um, for people coming for economic opportunity. And our, our immigration system, the legal system, has been so rigid and broken for so long, it's not responsive to to really what's out there. Well, and it can take years, even up to a decade sometimes, for uh, asylum applicants to even get before a judge. And the immigration courts are, are very, you know, overwhelmed and so forth. So, yeah, there are things the Biden administration has been trying to do to streamline that. And part of the problem is that he's not getting the funds from Republican Congress to be able to do that. Well, coming back to this poll, yeah. um, there seems to be bipartisan agreement among voters that the current situation isn't working or isn't acceptable. Is that fair to say? And, and does it suggest any solutions? Yeah, well, I spoke with Eric Schickler at the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley who, who did the poll. And he says it shows that this Republican messaging is really getting through even in Democratic California. I think that's what's kind of striking here. Let me just stop you there. Is yeah. it the messaging or is it the things people are seeing, you know, on well, TV? It, it's probably a combination of both. I mean, he's he's pointing to the messaging. And and but he's saying, you know, it leaves Biden in a no win situation because those liberals don't want him to be rejecting asylum seekers. The moderate Democrats and independents seem to want a tougher stance. And so it's really it's an issue where Republicans clearly have the advantage and the Democrats are on the defensive. You know, one of the things that uh, jumped out at me in this poll is Mm -hmm. when you look at the question, are unauthorized immigrants here illegally a burden 37% of Latino voters say it is a major burden. 26% say they're a minor burden. And there's similar numbers for black and AAPI voters. What what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it shows that Californians are divided on this issue, even within groups that traditionally favor Democrats. And, And because the Republicans are unified, this is an issue that works for them. We've got some close congressional races in California this year, and those are places where Democrats are trying to flip seats and take back the control of Congress. I think we're going to see immigration playing a real role in, in those races in the state. And, and those seats are not near the border, but mm-hmm. uh, they are in districts with lots of uh, agriculture and farm workers yep, and Latino, Latino voters. voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated mix. Yeah. And I think it's not playing out just as, you know, it's not a black and white sort of issue. It's more nuanced. And I know you've done reporting in the past election cycle. You went down to the district that Mike Garcia uh, won from the Democrats uh, and, and has held on to. And now he's up again for, yeah. for re-election. And, you know, it's I think is, do we need to also keep in mind when we're thinking of, say, Latino voters that, you know, like any group, it's not a monolith. I mean, you have different generations. You have people who are in mixed status families, you know, some where the, maybe the parents are here without documents and the kids are not. And California and Latinos in California, I mean, are very pro, pro-immigrant pro generally and pro-immigration. So I think it's not that 
it's, you know, like anti-immigrant, but it is looking at, you know, what is happening at the border. There are high numbers. What do we do about that? How do we handle asylum claims? Um, I think it's reflecting some unease. There has been a bit of a bipartisan effort to make a deal on immigration as part of a package to fund, uh, you know, the military and the wars in Ukraine, Israel, mm-hmm. Hamas. And, and Speaker Mike Johnson said today before meeting with Biden that a deal is just not going to happen. He says if we're going to do uh, anything uh, at all on uh, Ukraine and Israel, we've got to get the border taken care of first. Now, that is obviously a lot easier said than done. Right. Uh, I mean, what would it take? What what kinds of things might Democrats even consider that, you know, apparently up to now they have not? Well, I mean, and, you know, the Ukraine money is kind of a a must have, I think, for for the Biden administration. So they're really over a barrel here. And I think you're right that the the congressional Republicans, the, the right flank that Mike Garcia represents and is dealing with, they don't see any benefit from striking a deal with Democrats on immigration issues. Um, things like Biden asking for more funds for border communities to to, you know, to manage um, the border more more effectively. There's there's no benefit for Republicans there. I think they see chaos at the border as better for them politically. So to govern and to make, um, you know, to work together towards border solutions. I'm not seeing that happening. Yeah. And, you know, you'd have to say, too, that uh, Democrats are always saying we need comprehensive immigration reform, but there does seem there do seem to be more Democrats, especially in in sort of moderate swing districts, who are worried about this issue, and it could in, you know really endanger their reelection. Yeah, I think that's what we're going to be looking at. All right, KQED senior editor for immigration, Taiki Hendricks. Thank you as always, Taiki. My pleasure. All right, coming up next, former Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano will be here to talk about the new Center for Security in Politics. She leads it over at UC Berkeley. You're listening to Political Breakdown on KQED. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. Well, if you follow elections and care about the future of our country, and I'm assuming all of you do, 
then you're probably at least a little bit worried about how the 2024 election is going to play out. And there is a lot to be concerned about. The potential for foreign interference in our elections, false claims about stolen elections, misinformation, dishonest reporting, and dishonest candidates who are more than happy to amplify false claims, all of it potentially accelerated and distorted by artificial intelligence or AI. Just today, in fact, the Secretary of State's office up in Sacramento said a powdery white substance was found in the election office in Yuba County, and testing by the sheriff's office up there detected the deadly drug fentanyl. Election officials are for sure on high alert this election season. And so we invited someone whose unique resume speaks to many of the threats facing our democracy today. Janet Napolitano was a federal prosecutor before being elected attorney general and then governor of Arizona in the late 1990s and early 2000s. That was a rare accomplishment for a Democrat back then. Next, she joined the Obama administration as secretary of Homeland Security and later served as president of the University of California from 2013 to 2020. Today, she leads the Center for Security and Politics at UC Berkeley, and our interview with her was recorded earlier this month. Secretary Napolitano, welcome. Thank you. So let me just begin with this center you helped create. And it was created, I think, just weeks after the January 6th riots uh, at the Capitol. What was your vision for, for this? You know, I wanted to have a center at Berkeley where we could focus on issues that are maybe international in nature, but also can affect us domestically. And to take kind of a fresh view of what security really means, you know, most universities that have security studies focuses on military strengths, arms, uh, that sort of thing. We wanted to focus on things like emergent technologies and information and disinformation um, and how that affects our overall level of security. And so we do some teaching. I do some teaching. Uh, we take a group of students to D.C. every spring for a week of immersion into the D.C. security culture. Um, but we also do a host of convenings and a, a bunch of partnerships, both with federal law enforcement and security agencies, but now also internationally. And the center's portfolio, according to the website, includes not just you know, things like the military and that kind of security, but also climate change and biotechnology and even psychology. What's the thinking there? Well, the the thinking is, and this is based in part on my own experience, is that, you know, security, the safety of people in the United States, which was really my fundamental role as the secretary was was to protect the safety of uh, U.S. residents, um, is a very, I'll use a word that most people don't like, but I think is accurate here, holistic. Um, it's not just one. It's not just the other. It's many things all together. And you have to be able to look at things comprehensively in order to get a real picture of what is the security profile of the American people now. And when we say security in politics, it's not security in elections, which a lot of people are focused on right now. How do you see that difference? You know, we, we, we thought about calling it security and politics, um, but we thought, no, really security in politics. And we use the, the, the word in intentionally um, to, to, to say that there's really a symbiosis between our national security and our politics. And you have to be able to look at both together. Um, and in terms of 
elections, which you mentioned in the intro, Scott, one of the things American voters need to think about is how will the choice of leaders affect our national security? Well, and to that point, I mean, Donald Trump, the leader on the Republican side, has very for a very long time talked about uh, rigged elections and the big lie that the election was stolen from him. What concerns does his potential return to the White House raise for you? Well, I'll have to say, and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a Democrat and have been a Democratic officeholder. Um, but nonetheless, I, I think that former President Trump's rhetoric is increasingly dangerous and his repetition. And, you know, he just doesn't give up. I mean, he'll take the big lie and just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. Uh, and all of a sudden it's piercing people's consciousness. And so now polls show that close to 40 percent of Republican voters believe the last election was stolen. And whereby in courts of law, which I'm used to dealing with, where you have to actually have provable facts, no court of law has sustained or found any sort of fraud that would have affected the result of the election. So who's the audience for the work that you're doing at this uh, center? I mean, is it because that 40 percent, I don't know that anything could persuade them about, you know, the outcome of elections or security issues. I mean, we see things, we're in silos now. Yeah, we really are. And it's unfortunate. It's hard to see how we come back together again. But our audience is varied. It's obviously students. It's uh, other academics. But it's uh, also government agencies and leaders in government agencies. It's private business and people in private business who also have security concerns. So it's basically anybody who is interested in kind of a new profile on national security. You can go to our center website, csp.berkeley.edu, and that'll give you kind of a laundry list of the things we're involved in. Well, and at that website, it does refer to the project, the, the center, as bipartisan. Yeah. And I'm wondering, what does that mean? Because, you know, you'll always find, it seems these days, a rare Republican like Liz Cheney from Wyoming, who was on the January 6th committee, or, you know, people like that who are outside the mainstream now, it seems. Like, so when you say it's bipartisan, what does that mean? Well, it means that uh, we, we view security as a nonpartisan issue. So maybe nonpartisan would be a better phrase than bipartisan. Although on our advisory board, we have Republicans and Democrats. Really, everybody has an interest in safety. It seems like a lot of the action, for lack of a better word, on, on issues around politics is at the state level right now and mm -hmm. even the local level, like in Shasta County here, uh, where a very conservative majority got rid of the Dominion voting machines saying they weren't accurate, which was, of course, not true. Uh, they want to go to hand counts, which is even more problematic in a lot of ways. So, you know, the work that you're doing, how much of it is really global? How much of it is nationwide? How much of it applies really specifically here to California? You know, it's a little of each. Um, and so uh, we're doing work with Ukraine and work with Taiwan. Uh, um, two areas of the world that are potentially security threats to, to us here in the United States um, in, the, in the sense of what could happen there. Uh, nationally, the whole issue of how we deal with new technologies and how new technologies affect um, election security and, of course, information and disinformation, how that affects people's trust in the electoral process. You know, what's really frustrating is to see kind of the diminution in the value of provable fact versus theory. Um, what do you because, mean by that? What I mean by that is, for example, uh, take the Dominion voting machine uh, issue. There were all kinds of stories uh, put out about how Dominion voting machines were affected by the leadership in 
Venezuela. They were affected by something in Italy. They were, you know, um, they were rigging votes. They were stealing votes from Trump and giving them to Biden. And it turned out um, in a court of law where facts have to be proven, none of that was true. And Fox had to pay a big, big penalty for that. And they needed to. I mean, they should have. And there's another lawsuit pending that has even greater damages. So, um, uh, but uh, you know, at some point, um, fact has to, and provable fact has to take a more center stage. One of the things we maybe touched on a moment ago that I want to pick back up on is uh, artificial intelligence, AI. Uh, it's been around for a long time. Uh, you know, things like Google Translate and, you know, facial recognition on your phone. There's all kinds of ways it's been used and a lot of ways invisibly, but it's really coming to the fore now. How are you thinking about that in terms of our politics and our elections and the work you're doing at the center? You know, I think AI is a very exciting development in technology and for our society in general. There are a lot of concerns about it. Um, There are concerns about, you know, what happens if it takes over the world and removes humans from any kind of chain of command, for (laughs) example. Do do you think that's overblown? Um, No, but there, there, you know, over time there will need to be sensible guardrails uh, developed. Um, And what I think we need to recognize is that we're still in the innovation phase of AI. Um, and I, I, I worry that in the rush to legislate that we do something that artificially curbs innovation in the AI space. So I think it's something that we need to be cognizant of, we need to be wary of, we need to be watchful for. Um, but I also think we need to uh, not overreact legislatively. At the same time, there are some initiatives in Sacramento. President Biden issued an executive order last year to kind of begin to, you know, create a framework for regulation. And, you know, the tech industry says, some of them say, we need that regulation. But I'm wondering, like, what lessons do you see from earlier phases of, say, social media like Facebook or Twitter or, you know, uh, TikTok in terms of how much you can count on the industry itself to police itself. Right. Well, I think social media is an example of how not to do it um, because it was sort of allowed to run rampant. and Like the Wild West. Uh, like the Wild West. And, you know, now we're seeing all of the consequences of that. So I'm not saying don't legislate, don't regulate, but don't do it in a vacuum. I think you need to have uh, those who are in the government and regulatory spheres absolutely learning about and listening to those who are in the technological sphere. So you have an exchange of information on what works. I think actually President Biden's executive order was well received because it was well done and it was the product of such consultation. I want to uh, transition to another topic. Um, you know, we're in this moment, obviously, the, the war in uh, Israel with Hamas and Gaza uh, is just roiling our politics. We've seen it just last week up in Sacramento um, with protests in the assembly. Um, and I, and I, one of the things we've seen is recently the, the, the hearing uh, in the House with the presidents of Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, MIT, talking about anti-Semitism. Uh, on campus, and, and this has been a very turbulent time. And you know, th- those presidents were widely criticized for their very lawyerly answers to questions about calls for genocide of Jews and so on. And I'm just wondering, you know, how did how have you seen that? We've had now two resignations as somebody who headed up a major university, the University of California. You know, how do you how do you see the way this is unfolding? Well, I think uh, first of all, the hearing you referenced was unfortunate in in every 
possible respect. And I think the mistake was in assuming that this was for the exchange of lawyerly views about the First Amendment and academic freedom and so forth. It was a show trial. It was designed to be a show trial. And I think the three university presidents were not really prepared for that. Um, and didn't recognize the atmosphere that they were uh, being asked to testify in. Um, I, I suspect now they wish they had not agreed to, to, to testify. And I think they, there was an article in the Times about how they were all prepared basically by the same law firm. Right. Um, I saw that too, and, and I suspect that law firm is uh, at the least chagrined. Um, uh, but, you know, here's the problem in, in that, okay, let's get out of the— who is at fault? Was it Hamas for, for originally breaking the ceasefire and conducting a horrendous terrorist attack on Israel on October 7th? Um, uh, was, uh, is there a longer history here that we ought to be cognizant of? But universities are spaces where learning and education are supposed to occur. And what's happening with the protests is not a lot of learning or education going on. It's like there's one side, there's another side. There's no exchange. There's no dialogue. And that's really what a university should be about. Um, before I let you go, I want to ask you about Arizona politics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you were, as I said, you were elected uh, attorney general and governor, kind of a unicorn back then. There weren't a lot of Democrats at that time, I think, winning uh, those elections. What do you make of the changes there? Some of that, of course, is Californians moving there. But, uh, you know, it's more fundamental than that, more complicated than that. Um, I I assume you still have ties there. Uh, How do you see that? I mean, it's still kind of a toss-up state very much going into 2024. It's very much a toss-up state. I I think a couple of things. One is the population has grown and changed over the last uh, two decades. Um, It's a much more diverse population um, and a younger population. Uh, In fact, by age, it's one of the younger states in the country, much to people's surprise. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that the Republican Party in Arizona has seen fit to nominate far-right candidates. And um, this is a state that sent people like John McCain to the Senate. and those far-right candidates, all you know, Carrie Lake and et cetera, all lost last last fall. Um, they were in twenty-two, um, and uh, I think the lesson there is um, in Arizona, um, voters want pragmatic. Um, uh, they uh, want. Uh, people who are listening to them. They want the things that voters all over the country want. They want to be feel safe. They want good schools. They want a good jobs, a healthy economy. No big surprise there. Um, and the far-right candidates that uh, the Republican Party has been putting on the ballot uh, the last few years haven't had answers for those things. Mm. It's been a long time since you ran for office yourself. Is there any part of that you miss? Oh, I enjoyed running. You know, people say, how can you ever run for office? But I always enjoyed campaigning. But it was a very different world then. I'm not sure if I were my the age I was then now, <laughs> contemplating my first race, I'd have to think twice about it. Yeah. All right. Janet Politano, she heads up the Center for Security and Politics at UC Berkeley. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. And that's a wrap for Wednesday, January 17th. Political Breakdown is a production of KQED. Our engineers are Catherine Monahan and Seal Muller. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. 
I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.